rising tensions in our society has come increasing conflict, including increasing generational conflict. There are now a lot of stereotypes being thrown around about existing generations, from boomers to millennials. But my guest on today's program prefers to deal in facts. Her latest book analyzes data from 39 million people, debunking dominant health notions about our generations, and in a departure from the consensus within her field, points to technology rather than major current events as the main driver of generational differences. Twangy is a professor of psychology at San Diego State University. Her new book is Generations, The Real Differences Between Gen Z, Millennials, Gen X, Boomers and Silence, and What They Mean for America's Future. Jean Twangy is my guest today on Lean Out. Jean, welcome to Lean Out. Thank you. It's wonderful to have you on. This book is absolutely fascinating. I have a feeling I'll be quoting it for years to come. The conclusions about generational differences here draw on 21 data sets, which go back to the 1940s and include about 39 million people. I want to start today by first talking about some of the overall trends for all of the living generations that you examine from the silence to the polars. Can we start with income inequality? What do we know about rising income inequality and its significance on our culture? Yeah, so you know it's important to note first that a lot of traditional theories of generations focus so much on major events, and those do have an impact on people. But there's so many other things that have a much bigger effect on on day to day life and people's values and so on. And income inequality is an interesting example because it not it doesn't just have an economic effect it seems to have some downstream effects like it's linked to less trust in others and less confidence in societal institutions so it has these broader implications Mm-hmm. Now, another trend that you explore here, one experienced by all the generations, is rising individualism. What what impact does that have? Yeah. So, you know, so rising individualism, that's a cultural system that places more emphasis on the self and less on others. So it's rooted in what I think is the biggest um, influence on cultural change and on generations, which is technology. So not just the internet, but also things like um, air conditioning and washing machines and labor-saving devices, just better medical care. All of these things allow for individualism. It allows people to be more independent of each other. Uh, It allows people to have more time to focus on themselves and their identities. So that has these downstream effects um, where... There's just much more emphasis on feeling self-confident. There's much more emphasis on equality. You know, and I always want to emphasize with these things that it's tempting to look at things as just good or bad, but almost all the time there's trade-offs and there's lots of things that come from it that aren't good or bad. They're, they just are. Mm-hmm. And with with the individualism and the rising individualism, um, one of the things you look at is this idea of a slower life cycle. What, what does that mean and, and how, how does it impact us? 
Yeah, so that's one of the other downstream effects of technology, that when people live longer, because you have more time, the whole developmental trajectory slows down from infancy to old age. So kids are less independent. Uh, teens are less likely to do adult things like get a driver's license or have a job or drink alcohol or go out on dates. Young adults take longer to get married and have children and settle into a career. Uh, Middle-aged adults look and feel younger than their parents or especially grandparents did at the same age. So this is 50 is the new 40 and even 70 is the new 60. And this has some truth to it um, that we just have more time. And so even though day-to-day life, the pace is sped up, because we have more time, we take longer to develop. Mm. And the third kind of overall trend I just wanted to touch on is, is related to that. And this is the declining birth rate. Walk, walk us through what we know about that. Yeah. So we're seeing this around the world. Many, many countries are, are seeing a declining birth rate. So it's this is rooted in a number of things. So some of it is a slow life strategy that our developmental trajectory slow down, but basic biology is the same. So if you're taking longer at each life stage, you're going to have your kids later. And after a certain point, especially 40, then fertility is is going to go way down. So there's still biological deadlines, even though culturally and socially, you know, the trajectory um, has slowed down. So that has an impact on fertility. Even more, though, I think is the impact of individualism. Mm. There's been a number of polls recently asking young adults who don't have children, uh, and don't plan on having children. Why? You know what? What is their reason? And one of the most common reasons is personal freedom or personal independence. And that's that's a very individualistic um, point of view. That I don't want to have kids because it'll interfere with what with what I want to do. And again, not judging that as right or wrong. It just is. That is the logical outcome of that emphasis on the self that has been building across several decades. Mm-hmm. And and really, I'm um, going back now to to the specific generations. I mean, we can see that starting starting with the boomers. Um, you write in the book that you hope that demystifying generational differences may also reduce intergenerational conflict. Um, I want to start with the boomers who've had an outsized impact on our culture. There is this story about that generation that that um, they had things very easy, particularly financially, and then pulled up the ladder once they got to the top. Why is the truth you've discovered in the data more complicated? Yeah, it really is. Um, so, you know, I think you have to go back to, say, the 1980s when the economy in most Western nations started to shift away from manufacturing and towards service and white collar jobs. So boomers were the generation that really got caught flat footed by that, especially the segment that didn't go to college. So, you know, if you started your career, you know, graduated from high school in late 60s or 70s, like a lot of the first wave of boomers did, then, you know, you probably thought I could go get this factory job and be set. And then things shifted. And often when it was too late, or at least I felt like it was too late to go back to college or try to you know, figure out a different path. So there's a big segment of boomers who you know, are, are really even still in big trouble, not just financially, but also uh, especially around drug and alcohol abuse, that there's a lot of deaths of despair has been, has been documented by economists. And I found that when I looked at the data as well, uh, and just... Lots and lots of drug and alcohol problems. 
Mm-hmm. Which I was surprised to read about sort of the the mental health issues that the boomers have. So the silent generation born between 1925 and 1945 is actually characterized by fairly stable mental health, despite living through the Great Depression. That's but right. the boomers born between 1946 and 64 have less robust mental health, um, despite coming of age in more prosperous times. Why do you think mm-hmm. the boomers have a higher rate of mental distress? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I I think it has to do with just how much changed during their lifetimes, even though a lot of that change was positive in the economy and the culture. And it's tough to keep up with. And individualism might also have something to do with it, that although there's a lot of upsides to individualism in terms of freedom, it also can lead to disconnection and relationships that are not as stable and that can have a negative impact on mental health. That's also one of the biggest contrasts between the silent generation and the boomers, uh, that the silent generation tended to marry young, had their kids young, although they had a fairly high divorce rate as well. Boomers, it was even higher, and they started a little bit later. More of them didn't have children at all, so they didn't have a, you know, as much of the family support around them as silence did. Mm-hmm. And, you know, speaking of divorce, so you also write about Gen X, uh, born between 1965 and 1979. This is the group you and I both belong to. Um, How big a role did divorce play for our generation? Yeah, so the the traditional model of Gen X is that, you know, we're the the children of divorce, that that was the biggest thing that shaped us. And I was kind of surprised to find that, you know, actually most of us didn't go through a parental divorce. I think some of the impact was that we were worried, you know, when we saw other people going through that, that that would happen to us when we were kids. Um, But yes, there were certainly changes in family structure over the Gen X childhood, but they weren't as big as they're sometimes made out to be. Mm Mm-hmm. And I'm so curious, just as a fellow Gen Xer, I mean, I had heard you on Megan Downs podcast saying that the, the conversation around Gen X was really what led you down the path to, to, to do this work, which is your life work. How, how so? Yeah, so I was in college, um, working on my college honors thesis, which was on gender roles, and found that my fellow Gen Xers, especially the women, uh, were not scoring the same way that the 1970s test manual said they should on this questionnaire that was about kind of gender stereotypical personality traits. So things like assertiveness and leadership. Uh, And I realized, you know, that made sense because so much cultural change for women, you know, over that 20-year period between the early 1970s and the early 1990s. Uh, and so that kind of got me started, you know, on this path uh, of looking at generational differences. Uh, and it was also because right around that same time, there was a lot of attention paid to Gen X and, you know, how Gen Xers were different from boomers. Um, and there were a lot of really interesting articles and books and I devoured them, but then I read them thinking, you know, a lot of this, I don't know where, how they can conclude this because they don't have any data. And I, you know, I was doing a PhD program in personality psychology and they would say things like, oh, Gen Xers have low self-esteem. I'm like, well, hold up. You haven't told me if you gave a bunch of uh, people a self-esteem questionnaire, because that's how we would do it. And compared that with the responses of people in the past. And yeah, they hadn't done that. Um, so that was one of the things that I did. I went and did that. Turns out Gen Xers have higher self-esteem. Well, that's that's good news. That's good news for us, I guess. Um, and, and 
I also wanted to talk to you about about millennials born between 1980 and 1994. Um, really, the millennials have gotten kind of the lion's share of the media attention um, in recent in recent decades. Um, the the dominant narrative about millennials, given the recession in in 2008, is that they got the short end of the stick financially. But your data says otherwise. You write millennials actually make more money than previous generations did at the same age, and that's true across all racial and ethnic groups. And that is adjusted for inflation. So that's that's um, data from the Census Bureau, and they use the the usual adjustment for inflation. So that takes into account costs for healthcare and housing and education. Um, it it doesn't completely take into account student loans, which of course you know millennials have had to grapple with. But the Federal Reserve Bank of St. Louis looked at wealth for millennials, which take does take debt into account and found that millennial wealth is neck and neck with Gen Xers and boomers at the same age. So the economic picture for millennials has really changed. And I think the public perception hasn't. You know, it got stuck uh, at that time after the Great Recession. You know, even up to about 2015, uh, wealth building for millennials was was not great. You know, that's that's what the St. Louis Fed had concluded. But then there was this period about 2015 to, you know, really definitely through, through 2020 and even the last few years, even during the pandemic, when millennial salaries were doing very, very well. And that helped make up for their tough start um, during a recession when, yeah, at that time, they really were getting the short end of the stick. But then they ended up like everyone, seeing that huge growth in incomes and low unemployment during that period between roughly, you know, 2015 and, and 2019 in particular. Mm-hmm. It's confusing, though, because mo- millennials don't see themselves as as thriving right now at all. Um, and I, I'm I'm curious, like I, I wondered looking at that, okay, so if there's this big gap in perception, if they're much more pessimistic about their freight, even though their incomes are good. And then I thought, well, maybe it's the high rents, but you you say the housing costs mm-hmm. are factored into that. W- what is it then? Yeah. And there's, there's a number of things, you know, so one is that almost all of the income gains are for women. So if you take a heterosexual couple and then they want to have children, well, if both are going to continue working full time and keep up those high incomes, then they have to pay for childcare. So, and that's expensive and sometimes tough to find. And yeah, the inflation, you know, piece takes that into account. However, that's doing it for everyone. And if you're a younger family, you're going to be paying more. So there, there's definitely some problems there, to say the least. Uh, so I think that that is part of why they may not feel prosperous. Um I, I thought it might be. So yeah, rents are taken into account. There's an interesting little kind of mismatch I noticed here with how with the prices of houses. So if you're going to buy a house, that that those prices have have gone way up. But interest rates until very recently were, were lower. So that kind of balanced out the housing cost. I mean, you just still have to pay more for a down payment. So that's another issue. Hmm. I think, though, that a lot of the pessimism and negativity around millennials and economic performance is due to technology and the way these things are discussed online and on social media, that the discussion is almost always negative, that the news articles on millennials not doing well get clicks. 
that when you know when the St. Louis Fed updated their data and said, hey, actually, wealth building is fine, that didn't get half as much traction as when they said millennials are falling behind. Mm-hmm. It's just this, it's the social norm online, I think, at least on some sites like Twitter, where nobody goes on Twitter and says, hey, my salary is actually really good. And I think everybody's doing great. It's just not the norm. The norm is to go negative. Mm-hmm. And I, I wonder too about um, this next generation, Generation Z, born between 1995 and 2012. There's so much we could say about this generation, and they really are the ones that get talked about the most right now. But I just, you know, one thing that stood out reading the book is um, one of the hallmarks of that generation is is that it places a huge emphasis on identity. And the transgender issues in particular, uh, we know this has become a major culture war issue. Um, there has been debate about whether there is more transgender young people than there used to be. Your research shows, in fact, there is a, a rise within this generation of people identifying as transgender, but particularly among females identifying as males. Um, walk us through what that data tells us. Yeah, so this is from uh, the CDC. This is big survey, the behavioral risk surveillance survey of, of U.S. adults. And they have since 2014 asked about transgender identity. And there is very little change in the percentage of adults identifying as transgender among those over about age 27. It doesn't change much between 2014 and 2021, which is the most recent data that we have. But for 18 to 26-year-olds, the percentage identifying as transgender quadrupled over that time. So it went from about half of 1%. That's the statistic you so often hear about the number of, of people who are transgender. That's what it was in 2014 across age groups, and it's pretty similar across age groups. Then by 2021, it was 2.4%. So that's a, that's a really, really big difference. Um, so that, that's, that's what uh, that, that CDC data shows. Mm-hmm. And what's your sense of what's going on with that? I think we just don't know yet. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think it, 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 especially because a huge amount of that change happened between 2020 and 2021. I think that's something where we really have to do more research um, to to investigate um, why that change was so big in such a short period of time. Mm-hmm. Another one of the um, sort of big focal points for the Zoomers, as they're sometimes called, is 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 mental health as well. Separate from that, and and we are facing a crisis of mental health for this age group. And you make a very convincing argument that this is linked to social media use. How big is the problem of mental health among this cohort, and and why do you see social media as the chief culprit? Yeah, so th- this is by far, I think, the most concerning. Um, issue for Gen Z is this enormous increase in depression and self-harm and suicide among both teens and and young adults. And there's been a lot of attention lately um, and talk that this is because of the pandemic, and it is not because of the pandemic. At least it didn't start with the pandemic. Um, in, In the U.S. data, clinical level depression among teens doubled between 2011 and 2019. So even before the pandemic, this is something that started more than 10 years ago. And I I do think it is due to smartphones and social media, uh, not just because the change at the same time, which it is. Most people got uh, the majority of of, uh, North Americans got a smartphone by the end of 2012. Then social media moved from optional to virtually mandatory among teens around the same time. So it's not just that, though. It's that. 
these technologies fundamentally changed the way teens spent their time outside of school. Hmm. So they started spending more time online and less time with each other face-to-face, less time with their friends face-to-face. They also started spending less time sleeping and sleep is crucial for mental health. Mm -hmm. This is just not a good picture for mental health. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The sleep deprivation piece in particular, that really uh, resonated. And, And actually your data shows that when people were at home, the beginning of the lockdowns, teens were sleeping slightly more and their mm-hmm. mental health improved yeah. a bit. Yeah. Yeah. So that, that early period, you know, teens got a little bit of a, of a break, you know, from going to school and from having to get up early and that may have been somewhat helpful. Um, and then, you know, then that faded because then, you know, schools reopened, but there was still a lot of stress around the pandemic. And then coming back into that environment after being gone, there was a lot of adjustment. So, it's not that the pandemic was all good by any means. There was plenty of, uh, of of negative stuff there, but it's it's interesting that the mental health trends, for the most part, depression increased at about the same rate into 2020 and 2021 as it had the previous 10 years. It, it doesn't look like it accelerated. Mm-hmm. And in terms of like specifically who is more at risk, you do um, talk about a much kind of discussed finding that young white liberal women are far more likely to be depressed. Um, why Why do you think that might be? Well, I think that there's, you know, there's there's probably a number of, of reasons. But when I dug into this for the book, uh, I found that that is the group that spends the most time on social media. Mm-hmm. And the other thing, thing that's that's interesting, which is a little bit of a surprise, if you trace over time, teens spending time with each other face-to-face, it used to be that liberal teens spent more time with their friends face-to-face than conservative teens. And then that flipped. And it flipped around the same, same time social media became popular and depression started going up. So for whatever reason, that equation of more time online and less time with friends in person happened a lot more for the liberal teens, particularly for liberal girls. And so that might be at least part of the reason why the increase in teen depression is larger um, among liberal teens than conservative teens. Mm. And you also write in the book that perhaps, you know, conservative families are slower to embrace that technology because mm. they're, you know, maybe a little more skeptical. Is that, how much of a role do you think that might play? Well, I mean, I think that's that's the potential explanation for why um, liberal girls spend more time on social media and why they now spend less time with with their friends in person. So it's, but you know, it's it's we're still trying to figure this out. You know, this is again something that's that's new. Where where uh, you know, I, I think it 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 bears you know having more discussion and research. Mm-hmm. For sure. And and before we close, I want to talk a little bit about cancel culture. It's something that I've explored quite a bit on this podcast as a writer and a journalist. I'm really concerned about the illiberalism I see. Um, I'm a leftist Gen Xer. This is really very um, disturbing for me to see the left go in this direction. But it occurred to me reading the book, I mean, do you think cancel culture is is really at heart a generational conflict? I think there is a generational element to it, which um, hasn't been as recognized as I think it should be. Uh, you see that in survey data in terms of free speech issues. 
that, I don't know, take, there's a big survey of university students in the U.S., and there's questions about, you know, should we ban controversial speakers from campus? Should we have restrictions on speech that's considered racist or sexist? And there has been a change in that, uh, that the percentage of um, call, uh, university students who say that we should go in that direction of, of making these restrictions um, has, has gone up significantly. And you can see that in other surveys of adults as well in terms of restrictions on free speech that, um, First, the interesting thing is it used to be that liberals were more supportive of free speech, even if it was around issues that they thought were important, like racism. They used to actually be more likely to say, you know what, that speech should still be allowed. And then that flipped. And then it became more that the those on the left were saying, no, we should restrict that speech. And that shift has been particularly pronounced among millennials and Gen Z. And I think that's why you can see when you when you a lot of the high profile cases, certainly not all, but a lot of them, that is where the generational break has been between Gen X and millennials uh, in cases where there's some sort of free speech issue and it's the Gen X boss or person that gets fired or canceled. And it's often the millennial young, uh, young employees who are rallying for the speech to be restricted in some way. Mm-hmm. Well, it's just so helpful to have data on all of this that give us a picture of what the reality currently is so we can start moving towards some solutions, start um, hopefully coming together again. Uh, the book ends with some trends to watch. And I'm just curious for you personally, what what of these trends, what made you the most hopeful about our collective future? Well, one thing that does really give me hope is that Gen Z is voting at higher rates than young adults uh, did when when young adults were millennials and, and Gen Xers. So you know, this is a generation with a lot of mental health challenges. They have the accompanying negativity that often comes with depression. And depression is just about feelings. It's about thinking, seeing the world through a negative light. And that when I see that, that that is discouraging to see so much negativity out there. But if they can take that and channel it into voting, into political activism that hopefully you know works within the system to change it for the better, that definitely gives me hope. Mm-hmm. You know, that's tempered by the fear that the attitude is going to be, let's tear it all down and start over, which maybe because I'm in my 50s doesn't seem like a great idea. Uh, but if there can be constructive change when the young generation sees the problems we have to solve, I think that's fantastic. Mm. Well, that is a good place to leave it. Uh, Jean, thank you so much for this book and, and thank you for the conversation. Thank you. Lean Out is hosted and produced by myself, Tara Henley. If you value independent journalism, please consider subscribing to my Substack at tarahenley.substack.com.